0: Pacifico Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razozan. This week, we start the program by discussing Israel's latest assault on Janine refugee camp in the occupied West Bank with Moin Rabbani, Palestinian analyst and co-editor of Jadaliya Izin. Then we speak with Berkeley-based visual artist Mukhtar Paki about his mural, Sinbad Voyage, in central Berkeley. It tells the story of migrants who have fled war and devastation and tried to make their way across the Mediterranean Sea. Stay with us. <music> the Israeli occupation forces withdrew from Janine after two days of deadly missile strikes and ground incursion, leaving a trail of widespread destruction throughout the refugee camp in the occupied West Bank. The devastating attack killed at least 12 Palestinians, injured approximately 100 others. In his latest article in Jadalia titled, "Jenin," our today's guest, Palestinian political analyst Muin Rabbani writes, quote, The latest invasion of Jenin has followed a predictable pattern. Enormous and willful destruction, indiscriminate fire, the use of civilian non-combatants as human shields, the deliberate obstruction of medical care to the wounded, the intensive bombardment of a hospital with tear gas and the forced displacement of at least 3,000 residents. Mr. Rabani spoke with Wominos Shahram Agamir about Israel's latest assault on Janine refugee camp, the largest since its 2002 invasion that laid waste to much of the camp.
1: The Israeli military left behind a massive trail of destruction in Janine and its refugee camp. They used D-9 bulldozers, air raids, 150 tanks and armored personnel carriers and about a uh, 1,000 elite troops in Jenin refugee camp. And it's worth recalling, this is a camp that is less than one square kilometer in size and has a population of perhaps 15,000, so it's extremely densely populated. As far as, as the invasion itself, it appears that most of those Israel was hoping to target either left the camp before the israelis arrived or managed to elude the israeli forces israel succeeded in killing 12 people a number of them civilians none of them as far as i can tell any of the senior leaders that it hoped to target and the proof is that a number of them today participated in a massive funeral and victory celebration that was held in the Jenin refugee camp. Um, The other thing worth noting is that there were also attacks on Palestinian Authority security headquarters, both in the town of Jenin and elsewhere in the region. And this was in protest, first, at the absolute failure of the Palestinian Authority to do anything to defend its people from this Israeli assault. And secondly, that while Israel was conducting this attack, The Palestinian Authority Security Forces were, in fact, carrying out arrests of Palestinian militants and activists. And this obviously, needless to say, enraged Palestinians and caused them to start attacking Palestinian security headquarters under the rationale that if you do nothing to defend us and are, for all intents and purposes, acting on Israel's behalf, uh, what good are you? We don't need you. This was not,
2: after all, the first time that Israel had terrorized Janine's residents, uh, but it was the largest attacks since 20 years ago or so. In your recent piece in jedalia you argue that what Israel is doing is part and parcel of a bigger project, and you describe that project as such. The Janine assault is ultimately part and parcel of a broader political agenda, which is to make the West Bank safe for the rapid acceleration of Israeli colonization leading ultimately to formal annexation. And that's the end of the quotation from your piece. What did Israel achieve or what were its objectives? And why would the Israeli state opt for such a plan?
1: I'll answer your last question first. Why would Israel opt for such a plan? And that's for a simple reason that Israel's ideology, Israel's policy is that all of mandatory Palestine, including the West Bank, is exclusively reserved for the Jewish people, to use its term. In other words, Palestinians have no legitimate collective rights to the land on which they have lived for generations, centuries, millennia. This is exclusively Israeli territory as far as Israel was concerned, and that, in Israel's view, should lead ultimately to formal expression of Israeli sovereignty over the West Bank so that, in the words of previous Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, you know that Israeli sovereignty in the West Bank is indistinguishable from Israeli sovereignty in Tel Aviv, for example. So that is the broader agenda in which this is taking place. The second point is that many people have pointed to the fanatical extremism of the current Israeli government in terms of both its composition as a, and agenda as an explanation for the recent events in Janine. To this, I think it's important to point out that the operational plans for this latest assault were, in fact, formulated A year ago, under the previous Israeli government, which was led by Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid, who were often celebrated in the West as being a centrist alternative to Netanyahu. So that shows you that there is, in fact, an institutional continuity in Israeli policy towards towards the West Bank more generally. Then I think the other question to ask is, well, why did this attack target Jenin rather than, let's say, Ramallah or Hebron. And the reason is that the Northern West Bank has become increasingly autonomous in terms of the formation of militant groups and their growing ability to act and their increasing relative military sophistication. And that reflects a number of factors such as the weakening and delegitimization of the Palestinian Authority, largely as a result of Israeli policies to emasculate it and its compliant collaboration with Israel's uh, security agenda so that it has become effectively nothing more than a security subcontractor for the Israeli occupation and Israel's annexationist agenda. And so what we've had during the past year is the growing sophistication and a growing number of Palestinian attacks on the Israeli military and Israeli settlers in the Northern West Bank in response to this accelerating Israeli encroachment on Palestinian land and lives. And Israel has responded to this developing reality and has tried to snuff it out, if you will, by conducting a series of massive raids that were initially centered on Nablus, where you had a militant group named the Lion's Den, which it managed to significantly degrade. But in Jenin, and particularly the Jenin refugee camp, it had considerably less success. And on this basis, Israeli military and security forces felt that what would be needed would be a very massive operation to try to achieve the same results in Jenin that it feels it had previously achieved in Nablus. And with quiet in Gaza and elsewhere in the West Bank and a whole year of planning, Israel was able to devote some of its most elite troops, its intelligence capabilities, its drones, its tanks, and so on to this very small territory. And my understanding is that it relied very much on the element of surprise, um, which it absolutely failed to achieve. And secondly, that... It encountered only limited success in degrading, let's say, the infrastructure of resistance in Jenin refugee camp, and faced with much more effective resistance to its assault than it had counted on, and concerned that if this operation continued for much longer, that it would come under increasing scrutiny for its practices, it ultimately decided to withdraw. Having said that, I also think it's quite likely that this will be part of an ongoing series of assaults, just as, in fact, we have seen um, more or less routine Israeli incursions into Janine and Janine refugee camp during the past year. But for Israel, another factor, for example, was that if they escalated much more significantly than they already did, then there was always a possibility that Palestinian organizations in Gaza would join the fray, that there would be growing demonstrations by Palestinian communities within Israel, that other areas of the West Bank would erupt and so on.
2: This formal annexation of the West Bank, what does this scenario entail? And what is the fate that Israelis have in mind for the Palestinians?
1: Well, formal annexation basically means that Israel will pass a legislative act which formally incorporates West Bank territory into the Israeli state, and that this territory becomes legally indistinguishable from other Israeli territory. In fact, they've already done this in East Jerusalem immediately after the occupation commenced in 1967. They've done it in the Golan Heights in the early 1980s. There are other areas of the West Bank that um, Israel has annexed, primarily Along the boundary between Israel and the West Bank, so areas along um, the Green Line. And the Israeli approach is maximum territory with minimum Arabs. In other words, they want to control as much West Bank territory as possible with as few Palestinian residents as possible. And what this means is that it is unlikely that Israel will annex the entirety of the West Bank in one false swoop, but will began, for example, seeking to apply its sovereignty to what is known as Area C, which is about 60% of the West Bank, and major portions of which have already been ethnically cleansed by the Israeli military. And what you will see is effectively the formalization of a series of Palestinian ghettos, bantustans, if you will, where the majority of the Palestinian population will be concentrated. They will have no rights under Israeli law. And Israel will use the existence of the Palestinian Authority and the so-called peace process. And the Western states' has continued proclamation of support for a two-state settlement as a fig leaf to conduct such initiatives. And it's also worth pointing out that there are two factors that make Israel more likely to proceed now than before. One is that the United States has become increasingly open to the formal Israeli annexation of West Bank territory. During the Trump administration, the United States formally recognized Israel's illegal annexation of East Jerusalem and of the Golan Heights. And these recognitions have not been withdrawn by the Biden administration. And secondly, the current Israeli government contains several fanatical West Bank settlers at the highest echelons of government, the Minister of Finance, the Minister of National Security. And these are people who have a longstanding agenda that calls for not only the annexation of the West Bank, but also the expulsion of the Palestinians. And I think whether you're going to see an act of mass expulsion, as you did in 1948 or 1967, but it seems to me unlikely. What is more likely is to make conditions for Palestinians so miserable that they begin to trickle out in growing numbers. So depopulation is, of course, the ultimate objective following from annexation.
2: So, it would be fair to say that the long-term goal is to displace as many Palestinians as possible and to, quote-unquote, finish the job that began in 1948 with al-Nakba and make the entirety of Palestine a purely Jewish state.
1: Uh, Largely, yes. You you mentioned 1948. I would also mention 1967. In 1967, 1968, Israel, through a series of military and administrative measures, managed to reduce the population of the West Bank and Gaza Strip to an extent that these territories did not attain their 1967 population levels back until the early 1980s. I think Israel would very much like to have a West Bank with only symbolic number of Palestinians. At the same time, this is not 1948, this is not 1967, Achieving this is going to be significantly more complicated than it was in the previous century. And therefore, I think Israel's current agenda focuses very much on acquiring Western acquiescence in it's in an application of sovereignty to these territories. And I think Israel feels that once it has done so, it can then implement various measures over a longer term to begin to encourage depopulation. In other words, I don't think depopulation is Israel's immediate and short-term goal, but it's certainly, I would argue, inherent in the Zionist ideology that underpins this discussion we're having.
2: Moin, there's a piece published by uh, Amjad Iraqi, Yes, about the gasification uh, gasification, of the West. I would be curious to know what your assessment of that piece is. He kind of runs this parallel between Janine and uh, Gaza and saying that essentially the plan is to continue the same strategy vis a vis Janine as Israel has been pursuing with respect to uh, Gaza.
1: Let me start by saying it's an excellent article by an excellent analyst, and it was published recently on the website of Plus 972 magazine, and I would encourage everyone to read it. And I think the main point is that if you look at how Israel has dealt with Gaza in recent decades, it has, in effect, isolated it from the outside world. It's under siege. It's pauperized. You got to the point where You had Israeli specialists calculating the number of calories the average Palestinian Gaza would need to survive without either dying of malnutrition or being sufficiently well-fed to lead a normal life. That's the level at which Israeli policy towards Gaza is being implemented. And the other part is, you know, that every time these people raise their heads, they'll go in with massive show of force, what... um, the Israelis call mowing the lawn, in other words, keeping the grass short. We've seen that in 2008, 2009, 2012, 2014, 2021, where Israel engages in these massive, extremely barbaric military assaults on the Gaza Strip, resulting in numerous, predominantly civilian casualties, massive destruction of the uh, civilian infrastructure as well. And that is, in a sense, what we did see in the Jenin area this past week, where the water and electricity was knocked out. But the one comment I would make, of course, that Israel has managed to significantly fragment the Palestinians in the West Bank. Jenin area, you have the Nablus area, you have the Ramallah area, you have the Hebron region, and all of them are in turn isolated from East Jerusalem. But I would also argue that the boundaries between Jenin and Israel, on the one hand, and Janine and the remainder of the West Bank, on the other hand, are significantly more porous than is the boundary between the Gaza Strip and Israel. But overall, I think it's excellent analysis. And the other part of it, of course, is that Israel has managed to recruit the West, primarily the U.S. and the European Union as not only willing, but active participants in its pauperization and isolation of the Gaza Strip. And this would be something Israel would be seeking to do here as well.
2: It's certainly a frightening outlook. I, I fully agree. In your piece that was just published on Jadaliya, if I'm not mistaken, you refer to some of the internal dynamics of this far-right government that is ruling Israel now as a factor in the recent attack and assault on Janine. Can you elaborate on that?
1: I should start by saying that I mention it not so much as a factor, but as a possible factor that bears further examination. And today I received a detailed email from an Israeli correspondent whose views I value very highly. His name is Yaniv Kogan. And He didn't feel that this was a particularly accurate representation, and I'll I'll get into that in a moment. But you had, for example, in 1996, as Yaniv points out, Operation Grapes of Wrath, the massive assault on Lebanon and massacre in Ghana and southern Lebanon, carried out by the Nobel Peace Prize laureate Shimon Peres in order to ensure his success in the upcoming Israeli elections after his predecessor, Yitzhak Rabin, was assassinated, and that of course backfired spectacularly. Um, the point I was making here was twofold. On the one hand, you have an exceptionally fanatical and extremist composition of the current Israeli government, where you basically have a Minister of National Security openly calling for mass murder, in Jenin, in the West Bank, calling for thousands of bodies and so on. And you have uh, the Minister of Finance calling upon uh, his people to burn entire villages to the ground and so on. I should add, all of this, you know, with only a minimal response from those who are supplying Israel with weapons science and technology, with investments and so on. And you're speaking primarily, of course, about the United States and the European Union, And the other factor is that the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has this autocratic legislative agenda where, in effect, he wants to make the Israeli judiciary subject to the whims of the Israeli government and parliament and reduce its autonomous powers. And he's been facing months of very large-scale protests on this point. he has backtracked on certain elements of this, or rather he has suspended certain elements of his agenda in this respect. And this has resulted in significant opposition from some of his coalition partners. And the suggestion I was raising was that you have these fanatics who are demanding a bloodbath morning, evening, and night on the one hand. And on the other hand, they're now also opposing Netanyahu, seeking to procrastinate on the full imposition of autocracy in Israel, and that it's quite possible, in my view, that he implemented this latest Israeli assault on uh, Janine as kind of a political pacifier to those even more to the right as he is. And Yaniv Kogan, who I was mentioning earlier, pointed out correctly that In fact, those who were most determined to see this operation happen are, if anything, disappointed that it only lasted two days and that there were only a dozen or so Palestinian bodies to show for it. So the point I'm making is the point I've also made in the article is that Israeli policy towards the Palestinians is ruled as a matter of principle by continuity, by institutional consensus, and by long-term planning. But nevertheless, it is quite possible that at certain junctures, domestic, political, partisan, electoral considerations, call them what you will, enter into the fray. And it's worth, I think, examining further to what, if any extent, that was the case here.
2: I think it's only fair to talk about the agency of the Palestinians because we have been talking about the Israeli side and what their plans may be. We have been witnessing uh, what has been described as a shift in the... uh, current phase of the Palestinian resistance, references being made to the armed resistance forces that are present in Jenin and other Palestinian areas. In their current state, they have been characterized as not being an extension of traditional Palestinian political parties, such as Fatah or PFLP, even uh, to some extent, perhaps not an extension of Islamic Jihad or Hamas, or the more recent Islamic movements in Gaza and the West Bank. What explains the emergence of this strategy among the youth, mainly, and its timing. Why now?
1: Yes. Well, let me just start by saying that Islamic Jihad, Jerusalem Brigades, and now the Jinni Brigades, and the remnants of the Fatah-affiliated Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, I think are particularly present in the Jini area. And Islamic Jihad, for example, is also a leading force in some of its surrounding towns like Kabatia. And others. I think what we've seen in, in, in recent years is, as I was suggesting earlier, the Palestinian Authority increasingly losing control over the Northern West Bank because it has been thoroughly delegitimized by Israel's marginalization of the Authority. And at the same time, it has lost no opportunity to delegitimize itself by being a compliant Vichy regime, in effect, a uh, collaborationist security subcontractor for greater Israel. And as a result, also its own security forces often have shown insufficient motivation to do Israel's bidding. And here I'm talking more about the rank and file. And in this environment, you have had the emergence of new formations. I mentioned earlier the lion's den, in Nablus, which I think was in recent the most significant such formation. Now, you mentioned the traditional Palestinian factions. Well, the lion's den was formed by a combination of unaffiliated Palestinians and Palestinians affiliated with a variety of the traditional factions, all coming together in this group, unencumbered by the political calculations of a specific leadership, as a result of which they were able to prioritize and focus on an agenda that consisted almost exclusively of militant action against the Israeli military and its settlers in view of the rapid escalation of attacks on the Palestinians. And then that inspired other Palestinians elsewhere to conduct themselves similarly. And so you had the formation of the Janine Brigades in Jenin. And the other phenomenon was that many of these groups began forming connections across geographical boundaries because many of these uh, new formations were quite local in character. They began cooperating also with paramilitaries affiliated with established factions, such as the Qassam Brigades of Hamas and so on. And they also began absorbing militants who had been operating almost on an individual basis because they were not interested in joining any of the established organizations for whatever reason. And so this has led to kind of a new spirit of resistance and even in certain respects, a new agenda of resistance among Palestinians. And we've seen that most visibly in the Northern West Bank, which is distinct, for example, from the Gaza Strip, where you have Hamas, which is very firmly in control of that, has built up a much more regularized military capability and has subordinated that military capability very much to its political calculations.
2: I think it's fair to say that colonialism is an anachronism in the 21st century. And Palestine is one of those few exceptions that we have today. The final objective of any national liberation front in any in the anti-colonialist phase of the struggle has been the expulsion of colonialist powers and the establishment of a sovereign state. These national liberation movements have the political programs that go with it. What do we know about the political program of these armed resistant forces, as diverse as they may be? I know this may be Not an easy question to answer, but perhaps you can share with us what you can.
1: Well, this is precisely it. This is, in fact, their major weakness in that their political program consists of resistance, which I would argue is a legitimate objective in itself under the current uh, circumstances. But they see the Palestinian situation in the current environment as so difficult and so challenging that they have essentially prioritized resistance as a political program in and of itself.
2: The so armed struggle is a strategy and a political program. I mean, it's a tactical approach yes, and a strategy.
1: I, I think even that could be seen as an exaggeration because I don't, I don't really, to my understanding, they haven't really devoted much time and effort to developing a strategy. But yes, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with your own characterization. My sense is that their view is we need to give signs of life. We need to show that we are not capitulating. We need to show that Israel cannot act without being challenged. We need to transcend the horrible situation of the Palestinian national movement and the petty differences between uh, the PA and Hamas and Fatah and uh, whatnot. And our strategy is to show that Palestine still exists as a cause, that Palestinians continue to resist and will resist further Israeli encroachment and these kinds of more political strategic discussions that you're referring to, I think they have postponed for a later stage. I'm not the best informed person, but I'm not aware of any significant political, strategic debates and discussions being conducted within or among these groups the way you would have, for example, in the Palestine National Council in the the 60s and 70s and 80s.
2: So it's not as if there are any manifestos or declarations or pamphlets that they publish?
1: I'm sure there are. And these are much more focused on more short-term and immediate political objectives rather than laying out a strategic vision for the liberation of Palestine and what Palestine would look like after uh, liberation.
2: One of the uh, points brought up by people who were advocating for guerrilla warfare and armed struggle against authoritarian regimes or colonialist powers in the 60s and 70s was that it would show that the power structure or the authorities are not invincible. We sort of show this to the population that in spite of their might, we can attack them and we can actually inflict damage to this structure. And that was something that was emphasized and highlighted.
1: Yes, and I I would argue that under the current circumstances, the agenda of these groups would be to seek to reverse the growing apathy and despondency of ordinary Palestinians who have contributed so much and suffered so much and have so few political achievements to show for all their sufferings. And as some Palestinian analysts have pointed out, one of the great tragedies of the current phase has been that Palestinians have increasingly been betrayed by their own leadership and seeing their main political organizations engaged in petty power struggles over who gets to use a prison toilet first or who gets the warmer shower. And under such circumstances, it's been pointed out that Palestinians in recent years have increasingly began to search for individual rather than collective salvation. And speaking to the point you raised, I think very much on the agenda of these groups is, again, giving a sign of life, showing that Palestine and the cause of Palestine still exists, and that there are people prepared to struggle and sacrifice for Palestine as a cause and for the Palestinian people as a collective, almost as an act of armed mobilization, if you will. That is my reading of that aspect Mm. of their agenda. To what extent they will succeed, I think remains very much to be seen.
2: Well, given Israel's military and intelligence might, and that's undeniable, what do these resistant groups expect to achieve in this new strategy?
1: I think if it was up to them, they've seen Hezbollah in Lebanon develop from a ragtag militia into a um, regular army almost Um, that is now one of the most powerful in the Middle East and has managed to keep Israel at bay for decades. They have seen Hamas and Islamic Jihad and others in the Gaza Strip graduate from launching effectively um, empty tin cans at uh, the boundary between Gaza and Israel to being able to launch sustained rocket fire at Tel Aviv. So I would argue that they see themselves as being on a development curve of learning from their mistakes of becoming more sophisticated militarily and ultimately of trying to demonstrate to the Israelis that the cost of settlement expansion is going to be higher and with time increasingly higher than the benefits they derive from this.
2: That would be an incremental goal.
1: Again, you know, I'm speculating here, but my reading of it is that they do look at um, some of the interviews that have been given in the wake of this um, latest Israeli assault by Palestinian militants and leaders. They seem to speak to that exact point of, you know, comparing their military performance this week with that, for example, in 2002 and so on, and speaking about the incremental military development of Palestinian capabilities in the Gaza Strip in recent decades and so on. So I would argue that is their ambition and that is their aspiration. Of course, they're operating in a quite different environment than did either Hezbollah in Lebanon or Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And the question is to what extent will they be able to respond to these differences and turn those differences into strengths?
2: How have the countries in the region reacted to the events in Jenin, do you feel as if Arab government's increased acceptance of Israel has emboldened the colonialist apartheid state even further?
1: Well, of course it has. But even more so, I would say, I don't think Israel pays much heed to what the Arab states think. What really matters to Israel is how Washington responds and, secondarily, how um, the European Union responds. The rest, whether it's the region or the international community, it feels it can safely ignore. And in Washington, of course, you had expressions of unqualified support for Israel. Let's not forget, Biden has been a lifelong passionate advocate for Israel. The same goes for the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who's never seen a Middle East war that he didn't like. You look at the statements that have been emanating from uh, Washington from the outset, and they've basically been statements of unqualified support, denouncing Palestinians, (laughs) shooting back at armed uniformed soldiers seeking to occupy and invading their territory, denouncing them as terrorists (laughs) rather than recognizing them as defenders of their own territory against armed invaders. This, of course, was carried out largely with U.S.-supplied weapons. The way I characterize it is that Israel enjoys the active support of the United States and the passive acquiescence of the Europeans, although even the European support is becoming increasingly less passive and more active. And I would say that Israel can similarly count on the passive acquiescence Of most Arab states, there is perhaps one issue here, which is, as we saw in uh, 2021, that if things escalate markedly, and particularly in situations where, for example, Israeli desecration of the Haram al-Sharif and the Al-Aqsa Mosque is involved, mass demonstrations in Arab capitals, And this concerns not only um, the Arab governments, but also Israel, because it doesn't like to see its Arab partners endangered by instability that is being produced by Israeli attacks on Palestinians.
2: As a final question, Moin, colonialism's first order of business has been to divide and conquer indigenous populations. In the 1950s, in spite of a diversity of political parties and ideologies, the FLN in Algeria managed to present a united front during Algeria's War of Independence. Unfortunately, Ariel Sharon's scheme to split Palestinian resistance in two seems to have worked, further driving a wedge in an already divided Palestinian leadership. Given Israel's extreme aggression, what will it take for different Palestinian factions to put back the pieces together and present a relatively united front to better confront Israel's unrelenting ethnic cleansing.
1: If I can start on a historical note, the FLN in Algeria, and for that matter, the NLF in Vietnam, were able to establish organizational hegemony over the anti-colonial struggle. And they were able, without too much difficulty, to eliminate organizational rivals during the liberation struggles. The Palestinian situation is quite different because, of course, after 1948, you had a dispersed Palestinian population living under a variety of different authorities. So when the Palestinian liberation movement emerged in the 1960s, Fatah, for example, or the PFLP or any of these others, none of them had the objective circumstances required for them to establish an organizational hegemony, and therefore you had the emergence of the PLO as a kind of umbrella organization under which these different, perhaps rival, organizations coexisted. And I think, by the standards of national liberation movements, laudably pluralistic, that's not the case now. Of course, you mentioned Sharon and Israeli commentators and and, and decision makers during the Gaza redeployment in 2004-2006 we're speaking openly you know well the Gaza strip will become Hamasstan and the West Bank will become Fatahstan so israel actively worked for this and managed to achieve this and i think it's important to point out that regardless of israel's distaste for Hamas and its appreciation of the palestinian authority in the west bank it in fact prefers the fragmentation of the palestinians between Hamas and the PA, rather than their unification, even under the hegemony of the Palestinian Authority, whose agenda is much more compatible with Israel's. Now, the short answer to your question is that I think there are now significant vested interests in perpetuating the schism and the fragmentation and the division, but I think the essential precondition to even begin to think about overcoming the current reality is the removal of the current Palestinian leadership. Only once Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian leader, is removed or is absent from the scene can we begin to think seriously about these issues.
0: Mo'in Rabani is co-editor of Jadalia and the host of the Connections podcast. He spoke with Shahram Agamir from Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Iranian-American visual artist Mukhtar Paki's mural, Sinbad Voyage, at the intersection of Dwight and Sacramento in Berkeley, tells the story of people who fled war and devastation by risking their lives trying to cross the Mediterranean to Europe or somewhere safer. Sinbad Voyage which refers to one of the mystical heroes of the One Thousand and One Nights, depicts around 400 people packed tightly into a boat, those who either perished in their journeys or survived. I asked Mukhtar Paki about his creative process and the inspiration behind this mural.
3: The idea came actually about seven, eight years ago in 2015 when the exodus of the immigrants from uh, North Africa and Middle East started and many of the boats moved towards the Mediterranean Sea. They wanted to reach Europe and many of them sank and thousands of people died. So I was really stunned by the number of people in one small boat. So that image shows how frustrated these people were. They wanted to get somewhere. They wanted just to leave. And that was it. And and many of them died, but still they were coming. Nothing could stop them. So uh, I started to make sketches about that, usually when I'm very impressed or depressed. I make sketches, I make images, I communicate, kind of meditate with the subject, and I put them in a social media later, on, I paint a big image of the boat with lots of people in it. Later on, I offered this one to the city of Berkeley, and I just wanted to... Uh, make it more public. So I asked if you guys give me a, a wall. So it was through the Civic Art commissions that it happened after a few years. And uh, finally, last year, I got the approval and we found the wall. And then I started to work on January this year. So that was the base for that. Beside that, because I'm very interested in mythology and literature, so I thought I could uh, revisit uh, Sinbad's voyage from One Thousand and One Nights. I like reading One Thousand and One Night, and in One Thousand and One Night, there are a group of sailors led by Sinbad. They try to travel uh, seven times to go to different places. It's a very adventurous. It's kind of close to Homer's Odyssey. That they, mm-hmm. they, they see lots of misadventure and problem, and then they go back again and then they start again. So I thought this is also a good metaphor for the situation that people try and they lose and they go back again. The home is really not easy to live. That's why they try again and they try again.
0: This mural covers the side of a building on Dwight and Sacramento in Berkeley. It depicts around 400 people packed onto a boat. Hundreds of the faces are painted in detail. And there are groups of shadowy bodies hanging on to the edge of a boat. And from distance, it's just one boat. But when we come closer, it looks more layered.
3: This mural, which is uh, at the corner of Dwight and Sacramento in Berkeley, is 28 feet by 13 and a half feet and it is basically grayish tone, as a, you can see. It's, it's an ocean. It's a yeah. sea of water. And the cloud and sky and the water almost are the same color. It is like a stormy ocean, but it is also no, no sky, no sun, no moon. Mm-hmm. It's just very grayish. And also, it has a kind of eerie feeling in it. But in the center of that, it's a huge boat, which really, when you get closer to that, it's as if it's a combination of several boats together.
0: I also should mention that even though the background is gray and dark, but the boat and the people on it is just full of colors.
3: Well, that was actually the purpose of the the, the mural, to create the contrast between the reality in which they are surrounded and who they are basically this mural is celebrating the diversity and lively culture and the beauty of these people who are packed in one boat it is not just one boat it's when we talk about 400 people there are 400 lives 400 beautiful souls with lots of things to offer and as you know most of the people who came towards uh, the Mediterranean, they were from Africa, from Asia, from the Middle East. But since then, the, this trend has continued in several parts of the world, including the border of the United States and Mexico, the, in, in the Bangladesh, uh, Burma, and Rohingya people, and other, other places. And I wanted to bring the culture and color of these people and their handcraft, their tapestry, the fabrics they create, their hairdo, the way they actually they, they use the scarf over their head because, <laughs> let's face it, people who want to go to the boat and escape their country, they cannot carry anything except their, their outfit. So, but still, their outfit, the color, what you see, that is the, what they have. I talked to some of these people who are in a boat, their picture is in a boat, and they're musicians from Russia. And they uh, insisted that, oh, please, can you paint my instrument? And I said, my friend, your instrument is huge harp. If your harp be in that boat, everybody's going to sink." And they laughed. And I actually painted her harp as a... Mm -hmm ring and and she was very happy for that mm. so uh, people cannot even take the thing they want they cannot take their pets their loved one the only thing they can take them with themselves is their lives and but still still you see those colors. you still you see those the, the, you can see actually feeling the music of that and I just wanted to create that contrast I have to also mention that this painting was mostly using the technique of miniature painting and pardekhani in my country Iran. Parde is a huge loose canvas on which story is painted. Mm-hmm. And in traditional time, pardekhani or the narrator carried this loose canvas around and went from city to city and hung it on a wall and narrated the story. Of the painting on a loose canvas to people. And it was really very much like a uh, performing art. So I remember the day that I was at a reception and I actually talked in front of that mural to uh, people and it was recorded and filmed. It was very much like I was doing really part of the honey. I was narrating the story. And in Pardekhani, the technique is you have a situation and also you have three or four huge faces that are main character of story. And also you have medium-sized faces and also you have a crowd and they are all kind of entangled into each other. So it's sequences of story scattered around the painting canvas. I also painted in a way that when you walk on a sidewalk beside them, you see the details. But then you are the other side of the street or you drive, you see the whole boat as an image. So it has two dimensions. If you see it from distance, you see the wholeness of the story. But when you get closer, you are going to see the combination of melancholy and happiness, color and the beauty of that.
0: So people who come and see this mural, they might not realize that these faces are real. Your mural, as you said, is based on the experiences of real immigrants, including yourself and your family. Some of those people live in California. You also included the face of your own niece, Sanas, who had tried to escape Iran through the Persian Gulf at the age of five. You have painted four children who are standing right next to each other. Can you tell us more about that specific part of the painting and those children?
3: They are facing the audience, they are looking at you with the Mm -hmm. very open eyes. And Sana's, my uh, niece, she died over 30 years ago when she. And her father and other other people tried to go through Persian Gulf, escape Iran towards the other side of Persian Gulf. The boat capsized, and uh, my brother survived, but uh, many others died. Beside, sanas is a Guatemalan girl who was seven years old, and Jacqueline. She actually died during the Trump administration when they separated children from their family. And I think she got cold, and then she was neglected and then she just died far away from her family. There is also another girl who is from Afghanistan. Her name is Maede Hosseini, who Maeda Hosseini wanted to be a musician and a sportswoman and she came to Iran, and after that, she decided to go to Europe. And she died actually this year. When I was painting this mural, she drowned. And there was another person, another young person, was like about 14 years old, 15 years old, Carlos. He was from Ochoa, Guatemala. He came here to take back his younger brother, but he got cold, and five days after that, he just died alone and they found his body a few days or later. And so it was also neglected. All of them happened in Trump administration. And they were all immigrants. And we have more kids, actually, in this painting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but they are not only kids. And also the whole thing is not o- about dead people.
0: Of course, as you said in the beginning, this is also about celebrating the experience of many of these Im- immigrants who've ended up in the United States. There is a face that's very prominent in this mural. And I asked you whether this was Gina Masson Amini. Uh, who sparked the recent anti-government protest in Iran, the woman Life Freedom protest. But you said, no, it's a combination of different people. Can you tell me a bit more about that face and yes. what it represents in this mural?
3: Yes. Uh, well, thank you. This painting is dedicated to immigrants. So I'm using the image of people who immigrated or they are constantly in move to immigrate from one place to another place, or they're in a the state of immigration. And Mahsa Amini was in the mind and heart of many Iranians since September 2022. And uh, when I was painting it, I wanted to paint a Yazidi Kurdish woman, because I used three big faces for this mural, one from Africa, one from the Middle East, and the other one from uh, Central America. So for Central America, I used colors from uh, Guatemala. For you know Africa, I used this mother that uh, was from Congo. For the Middle East, I used the face of one woman, guerrilla, one Yazidi woman who fought against ISIS was strikingly looking like Mahsa Amini. And also I used Mahsa Amini's face and kind of combined them together as a symbol, as representative of that region. She's very beautiful. She's very dignified. And also she was very much in my heart and in my vision. So it just ended up there. So you
0: alluded to how this mural is also about celebrating the lives of these immigrants
3: just going back when I talked about uh, Kurdish and Yazidi and all altogether I think Kurdish especially I think it's uh, one of the biggest group of immigrants it they have been nationless and they moved from area to area so that's why I see them as immigrants. Mm. Uh, Pretty much, so that's why I also wanted to dedicate to their beautiful culture. Uh, going back to your question, yes, I think culture and celebration just uh, there is something that any immigrants they bring lots of sensibility. There is a lots of history, lots of tales, lots of music lots of art, lots of culture. They bring their own integrity. So when we see this boat, we realize that we have a whole world packed in one small area. And just imagine if these people have opportunity to live their life, they are going to explore, they're going to express everything that I have. So uh, since uh, I had the very limited possibility of just image in a boat, so I used handcraft, I used all of this visual thing that they can express the celebration of life. One thing about this tragedy that we just talked about, it happened this week or four months ago, or 2016 in the Mediterranean or border of, Mexico and the United States or Rohingya, one thing is very clear. These people just don't die. They survive. They are resilient. They go to another country and they bring lots of, lots of, lots of good cultural uh, aspect of their own life there. What I wanted to say that immigrants should be considered as a gift, not as a problem. And uh, I believe that uh, hopefully one day uh, we don't need any border award.
0: Mukhtar Paki's mural, Sinbad Voyage, is located at the corner of Dwight Way and Sacramento Street in Berkeley. You can learn more about his work by visiting his website, mukhtarpaki.com, from Pacifica Radio, This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. In 1988, the Islamic Republic of Iran agreed to bring an end to the brutal eight-year war with Iraq. Over the next two months, under the orders of Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini, political prisoners around the country were secretly brought before a tribunal panel that would later become known as the Death Commission. Thousands of men and women were condemned to death, many buried in mass graves in Khawaran Cemetery in the vicinity of Tehran. Nasser Mohajer, the author of Voices of a Massacre, will talk about his book, on Friday at 7 p.m. at Revolution Books, located at 2444 Durant Avenue in Berkeley. For more information, please call 510-848-1196 or visit revolutionbooks.org.
1: And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: You can find us on Twitter at vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Yeah